All right, Saul Company, you guys can take a seat. All right. Uh, before we before we get started, I have a little uh, little housekeeping. Uh, if you drive a silver Lexus sedan, uh, yeah, yeah, good for you. Uh, your lights are on, or your like doors cracked open. Your lights are on. License plate MAB nine four nine. Just be bold. Get up and lock your car. That'd be great for your sake, so you can get home. Uh, what's up, Soul Company? My name's Colin. Um, ah. They thought they could wait until I started talking and no one would notice, and everyone was still looking. You know, who is it? That's a bummer. Uh, and then they have to come back in to the front. Shoot. Uh, my name's Colin. I work for Saul Company, and thanks for being here. If you're new, uh, especially thank you. We love having new people at Saul Company. Uh, you're, if you're new, you're actually jumping into the last week of our series called Scandalous Stories, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus and, and discovering what uh, they mean, what they mean for us now. And so this week, uh, we're going to be in Luke 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, just a little preview for uh, next week and the upcoming weeks after that. We're starting a, a new series that uh, I'm really excited about. We're calling it The Pleasures of God um, and and things that God loves that we've distorted. So I'm excited about that. But, but for today, uh, we're going to be in Luke 13. As you turn there, I want to tell you guys a story um, actually that happened to me earlier today. So uh, I was prepping uh, for tonight. Uh, earlier today, I needed to get lunch in a pinch, so I went to my refrigerator, got uh, pizza that I learned early on was like, you know, one day too old probably. Like, it was fine. It was just a little slimy. Uh, it's fine. So I started eating it. I ate one piece. Good. Uh, I ate the second piece, and I'm 75% of the way through, and what I thought was an onion because it was a supreme pizza, uh, I learned was actually just a big glob of mold. So I finished the piece. Um, I didn't actually finish the piece. But if I, if I like, run off the stage, it's probably because I, you know, got something going on in my gut that I need to take care of. Uh, it, it's fine. I feel great. Uh, but as I was like, man, I love pizza. If you guys know Rachel, Rachel and I, we really adore pizza. It's our favorite meal. Uh, so I was chatting with Rachel about pizza, and then she asked the question. I don't know how we got to it, but she's like, where does pizza come from? And I was like, I have no idea. Italy, obviously. But other than that, we didn't know the story of pizza's origins, so we looked it up, and it is from Italy. Uh, specifically, it's from a little town in Italy called Naples. And for a long time, pizza uh, was just, like, not very common because people in Italy, they're really posh. Uh, so they thought you could only eat with silverware. Uh, so most people in Italy didn't like pizza, but the blue-collar workers in Naples, uh, like, that was their only option. They, they needed something on the go. They needed something they could eat with their hands. Uh, so they started putting toppings on flatbread, and it became pizza. Well, the rest of Italy really hated Naples for this because they thought they were, like, ruining Italian cuisine. Uh, so they... Everyone in Italy wanted to restrict pizza just to Naples until a queen uh, went to Naples and decided to eat pizza. And the queen uh, fell in love with pizza, and then it began to be commercialized all over the world, uh, especially here in the United States. So something that was initially 
meant to be rejected and forgotten in a little town in Italy, has now grown to a worldwide phenomenon that everyone can't get enough of. Like if you could have, if you could rewind 15 years ago and buy Pizza Hut stock, uh, or Domino's, excuse me, Domino's stock, you'd be a really wealthy individual. Uh, it, it is a, it, it's seen crazy growth. Why? Because pizza is one of the most loved foods in the world, but it started uh, as what should have been a forgotten story in a little town in Italy. And tonight, we're going to look at a story about uh, about something that's really similar, something that's insignificant, something that should have died in history, but instead something else happened. And so that, that's the story we're going to look at tonight in Luke 13. We're going to start in verse 18. We're just looking at two verses. He said, he being Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So if you've been tracking with us at Saul Company, this isn't the first parable that we have read where it says the kingdom of God is like, right? So we defined the kingdom of God as the right now rule and reign of Jesus over his people, the expansion of his lordship over those who love him. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the reign of Jesus and what it's like, and he compares it to a mustard seed, which I don't know if you guys have ever picked up a mustard seed, you probably wouldn't even know if you had because mustard seeds are incredibly small. Like so incredibly small, borderline inconsequential, like a grain of sand. So I did a little mustard seed research. A mustard seed weighs 0.002 grams. So in order to have one pound of mustard seeds, you need about a quarter of a million mustard seeds to get a pound. Okay, in comparison to another seed that you'd probably know more like readily on the top of your mind, a sunflower seed. A sunflower seed is 45 times heavier than a sunflower, or than a mustard seed. Did I say that right? A sunflower seed is 45 times heavier than a mustard seed. I said it right that time. Uh, So mustard seeds are tiny. They're meaningless. They're inconsequential. And I think it's important that when we look at this story of the mustard seed, we don't just skip over the size and the insignificance of the mustard seed to see what the mustard seed becomes, but to say, man, there's a reason Jesus compares it to the smallest seed in the garden. Something that's so small that if you picked it up, you might not even know it. It'd fall right out of your hands. It's crucial to the story. Which, I'm just going to stop for a second. This isn't the main part of the parable. This isn't the main part of my message, but I I felt like I needed to stop and, and just ask the question if anyone in the room has ever felt like a mustard seed. Not, not literally, but have you ever felt small? Like maybe even in this room you feel insignificant. You feel worthless. And I want to say two things to you before we go any further. One, Jesus has something to say to you tonight. And if Jesus has something to say to you tonight, that makes you significant because he's ultimately significant. So if the one who's ultimately significant has something to say to you, that means you have some level of significance too. At Soul Company, we try our best to be kingdom people, to be people that, that live in the right now rule of Jesus. 
And so if Jesus is going to tell a story of how something insignificant can become significant, can matter, we want to be people that look at you and say, man, even if you feel insignificant, we actually think your life matters, and we think that you can go from a life of insignificance to a life of significance. And we want to help you do that at Saul Company. Insignificance does not have to be the end of your story. So if that's you, I just want you to know you're welcome here. We love you here, and we want to get to know your story. But the story of the seed doesn't end there either. The, the seemingly insignificant seed goes from being the smallest seed in the garden to the largest tree in the garden. The, the tree that towers over every other plant, it becomes a tree that, that provides shade. It, it's a tree that's home to the, the birds and, and nurtures the garden. The insignificant seed has now become the impactful tree. And this insignificant to impactful transformation is what the kingdom of God is like. And so this parable, if you've been coming, is, is actually a little different than the other parables. See, the other parables we've looked at tell us timeless truths about how we receive the kingdom of God or how we should live in the kingdom of God. But this parable is a little different because it's a prophetic parable. It's a parable that, that tells us about the impact the life and ministry of Jesus would have. And then it's going to say something to us at the end of tonight. And so tonight, before we get to what it has to say to us right now, I actually just want to walk through the, the life story of Jesus. A story that in a lot of ways should be irrelevant and insignificant. But what happens is that the life of Jesus becomes the most significant life to all of human history. That's a fact. It's not just something Christians say, that's something all historians say. Jesus is the most significant man that's ever walked this earth. And so as we dive into the story of Jesus, I'm guessing there are some of you sitting that are like, man, I know this story. I've heard this before. You, you're, you're treating it like maybe a Hallmark movie, right? Everything, same plot every time. Different characters, different names, every ending is the exact same. And I'm saying, hey, maybe treat it a little bit more like a Christopher Nolan film. If you guys don't know who Christopher Nolan is, Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, any movie that really makes your head hurt, The Prestige, uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, but his films have like deep layers, and every time you watch it, you're, you're looking and seeing something new, and, and I'm saying that's what the story of Jesus is like. That even if you've heard it a hundred times, there's, there's something new that God wants to teach you about himself tonight. Or maybe a, a new truth that he wants to land in a different way. So even from the beginning of the story of Jesus, it actually starts in a rather unconventional way. We often are told that Jesus is born of a Virgin Mary, which is true, but what we don't always talk about is the social ramifications Jesus would have lived with for his entire life because of that reality. You see, not everyone in the town would have believed that he was born of a virgin. They probably thought his mother Mary went and had sex outside of marriage, which at that time would have cast a lot of shame on, on that family, specifically on Jesus. He would have grown up a bastard child. And not only did he grow up like that, but a lot of uh, biblical scholars think that when Jesus was a teenager, he actually lost his dad. So he's now a bastard child who's fatherless and a teenager. 
And he immediately assumes the role of family caretaker for his family. So what that means is he picks up the family trade. He becomes a carpenter, but not just that. Actually, he probably was a farmer too and and farmed a large garden in order to feed his family. And he did all this in a village called Nazareth, which why is Nazareth significant? Well, Nazareth is probably a place of no more than 100 households. All of them, tiny, probably two-bedroom, little huts, uh, for, for an entire family, a place so insignificant, if you were looking for it on Google Maps before the time of Jesus, like your fingers would get sore from just scrolling until you find it. Like it doesn't pop up easily. You'd have to be right over it in order for the name Nazareth to pop up. It was even so small, so like low in in the times that Jesus lived that it was a common phrase that said, what good could come from Nazareth? Is there anything good that can come from that place? Because it just seems so insignificant, unimportant, right? Like, Nazareth is the furthest thing from the Edina of the Middle East. (laughs) Like, it's nothing like it, right? Finally, at the age of 30, Jesus starts his earthly ministry, but he also does that in a Not very audacious way. He picks 12 teenage, probably 15-year-old boys to, like, follow him and to teach those guys. Guys that already had, like, for the most part, blue-collar jobs. And when his reputation builds as he teaches and performs miracles and crowds start to form, he doesn't embrace the crowds. He leaves the crowds. And he doesn't just leave the crowds, but he leaves the crowds to go to hurting people. Jesus knew something about the kingdom, that he could do more with 12 disciples than he could with 12,000 religious consumers, right? Like, he leaves the crowds to go pursue the disciples and the hurting people. We expect Jesus, who, who's the king uh, of all, earth, all the earth, to come down and like, man, even in him coming down, maybe he gives up some things, but still lives a pretty normal life. Like, if we were God in flesh, maybe we'd live, like, the the Meghan Markle, Prince Harry life, where maybe we give up the title of royalty, but we still live in our $10 million mansion on the ocean, right? Like, they're, like, like in their documentary, they're living large. But it's not like that. Jesus goes to the brothels, to to the drug deals, to the drunkards, and he makes friends with those people. The Nazarene, what good could come from there? And all climaxes at the end of his life where Jesus dies alone, weak, naked, and a criminal. Stripped of all dignity. Like I think we, we're, so, we're so caught up in this story that we know it so well, but it's like, man, why couldn't Jesus die like fighting against Rome at the hands of, of like, a battle. He dies on a cross, naked, with everyone he loved has betrayed him. With the hopes, the Roman hopes, that Jesus wouldn't even make it to be a footnote in your history books. One of many that they killed, that tried to raise up against them. There are many criminals who died of the same crime Jesus did and We don't know any of their names. And even in his resurrection, like, yeah, Jesus conquered the grave. It is the greatest turn in human history. And even 
in that, he does it in an unexpected, unexpected and underwhelming way. He didn't go back to the Roman officials that killed him with a sword. He goes to his friends that betrayed him with scars. It's unexpected. Okay, again, I just have to stop and kind of pause the, the storytelling of the life of Jesus and just say, like, yes, Jesus has changed the world, changed all of human history. He is cosmically Lord. Like, he reigns over all the earth, all the planets. That is who he is. He was sinless, and yet he suffered. Why do I say all that? Because in simplest terms, in doing that, he bought your freedom with his blood. Okay, so I, I, I just have to stop here because I think there are a lot of people, actually. in fact, I know there are a lot of people that have been coming to Saul Company all year and have heard uh, us give messages about, man, what does it mean to live a, a life that's informed by the gospel, that the, a gospel-centered life to live in the kingdom, but this is the crucial part. That the God of all heaven would put on flesh and die at the hands of Roman officials as a criminal. Not just to influence history, but so that he could be in relationship with you. That's what Jesus did. And so before I go on, I just want to ask you, have you seen how this has impacted your life? I know there are people that have been coming all year, and maybe you come to be a better person, to make better friends, to get out of a, a life that you used to live. But have you seen the glory and the beauty of knowing Jesus as a friend? As seeing yourself as a sinner that deserves death, but, but seeing the great substitution that Jesus has paid for you so that you could be in relationship with him, so that you could know him. that he paid his blood so that you might be a part of his family. That he restores hopeless people and he gives them hope and life and joy. So my question for you is, like, where, where, where are you at with that? Have you asked yourself about that? Have you really decided for yourself what it means to, to follow Jesus and to put your faith in him? And I, I just ask you first, man, wrestle with that. Maybe you've been coming for a long time. Wrestle with that. And if, if you're so inclined and like, man, I, I need to process this, please come find our staff uh, after. Uh, come find me. Come find the, the, uh, whoever's at the welcome table. I think it's Kaylee. Uh, we would love to, to process Abby, Austin, Josie, Nate. Uh, we'd love to process that. Okay, back, back in the story. Okay, if all that is true, if all that is true, what actually happens that Jesus raises from the dead, why does the story continue to seem like it's insignificant? Well, again, he goes back to his teenage friends that are cowards that left him in his greatest time of need, and he goes back to the place where the Romans just killed him. Like, if you're going to start a movement, start it in a different place with new people. I mean, Jesus has a terrible strategic plan to reach the world. It's like, I'm going to use these teenagers that really don't have it, their life together at all, and I'm going to start it in the place where the Romans are trying to kill me. I mean, it's just a, 
It's unfathomable to think this is a good plan. This is like a CEO retiring and then gathering his 10 interns and saying, you're running the company now. Not one of you, but all of you together. Good luck. That's, that is Jesus' plan. But this is how God wants it. Jesus, when he's sharing the story of a mustard seed, something small, something seemingly insignificant that would become a large tree, he knew that that's not only how his kingdom would come, that's how he wanted his kingdom to come. He wanted his kingdom to come in an unexpected way, in a way that seemed like it was going to be irrelevant and then became strong and expansive. So if you're looking for an apologetic for the Christian faith, man, this is it. Go back and like read history because historians would agree that Jesus, Christ, Jesus is a real man. He is from Nazareth. He really died on a Roman cross. And then the movement of Christianity spread from the place where he died and went outward through persecution. It endured the persecution of the Roman Empire so much so that the Roman Empire had like ended up adopting Christianity as its official religion. That's what happened. And it continues its expansion to you right now in the room. It's a fulfillment of a prophetic parable that no amount of persecution, no amount of suppressing the movement of the gospel has been able to stop it from reaching you in 21st century America. That's amazing. It was always the plan that the fatherless Nazarene would change the world that the insignificant seed would be sown and would become an unbreakable tree. But there's more to the story. I think Jesus tells us this prophetic parable not only to describe how his kingdom would come but one time, but how his kingdom would continually come after that. That you didn't just get here from one link in the chain, but there were many links in the chain that brought you to this place. Many seeds that have been sown so that you can be sitting in these chairs right now. So I have a question for you guys. How many of you know the names Troy Nesbitt, Tom Nesbitt, and Jack Owens? Maybe Abby. I don't know. Uh, a few other people. Okay, those three people. There's no reason you should know who they are. But those are the three people that are responsible for you being in a gathering right now called Salt Company. So I just want to really quickly tell you their story. So Tom Nesbitt moved his family to Ames, Iowa, so he could pastor a church in Ames called Grand Avenue Baptist Church. And then, well, Troy was uh, Tom's son. Troy decided he wanted to follow in the family business and decided he wanted to do ministry. And so he looked for a job and, and got a job with Jack Owens at a, a small little university uh, ministry called Baptist Student Union at Iowa State University, which some of you guys think Salt Company's name is bad, Baptist Student Union. Anyway, Troy took over the Baptist Student Union, and the first thing he did was change its name to Salt Company. Uh, but the other thing he did is he decided, he looked at the Bible, and he, he saw that, man, God's kingdom and God's mission is fulfilled when people are discipled in the local church. And so he made Salt Company a ministry of his dad's church. 
Well, fast forward, Saul Company begins to outgrow Grand Avenue Baptist Church, and so Troy goes to his dad and asks if he can plant a new church of movement of the gospel to reach college students. And so Troy plants what is now Cornerstone Church of Ames. And I think it's easy to think, man, Troy planted a megachurch. And it's like, no, Troy didn't plant a megachurch. Troy planted a church with like 200 college students and 24 community people. Imagine trying to pay the bills like that. Okay, so they, they plant Cornerstone Church of Ames with 24 community people, a young pastor with a goal of reaching students in Ames, Iowa, and that's it. Fifteen years later, Cornerstone Church plants its first church in Iowa City called Veritas Church because the students at Iowa are all heathens and are desperately in need of the gospel. Do you guys know Hawkeye means heathen in Greek? It doesn't. Anyway, so they're like, wow, Iowa needs the gospel. So they planted a church in Iowa called Veritas. Seven years after that, uh, a church is planted in Minneapolis, and with it, a salt company is planted. And salt company in Minneapolis starts, and it doesn't start the way you think it would start. Guys, I was at the first gatherings of salt company, 40 people, in an upper room in Northrop Auditorium, incredibly awkward. It was like a guitar, Jordan talked with a microphone but didn't need a microphone because there were 40 people there. And at one point, guys, it was like the, the door to get out was like kind of behind Jordan. And so one time Jordan's talking, and it's like a small room, right? Like you feel everything. Guy like gets up, walks out, walks right in front of Jordan and, like, Jordan didn't know what to do. The other 39 people there didn't really know what to do. Hey, look, look, look where we're at now, though. Seriously, that's crazy. It, it, yes, you can clap. It is crazy to see the work of God. And it really hasn't been that long. So now Troy ended up starting this thing called the Salt Network. Guys, the Salt Network has 24 churches, 25 salt companies in 14 states. And at fall kickoff this last year, there were more than 8,000 students that went. That's a movement of the gospel. And tomorrow, over half those students are going to gather in Des Moines, Iowa, and praise the name of Jesus and sit under Bible teaching. And if you're still unsure if you should sign up, you should. Best worship you'll ever have. Uh, It's going to be amazing. And what I love about it is we're going to meet in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a really insignificant place. Why Iowa? Why Iowa? Here's why. Here's why. Because God wants to show all of you, he wanted to remind our network that he can do so much with so little. Okay, guys, here's what I love about the story. Here's what I love about the story. Tom, Troy, Jack, they'll all probably be at conference tomorrow. And yet, if you show up to conference, none of them will get on the stage. You might walk by them. You wouldn't recognize them unless you knew what what they looked like already. You You wouldn't know who they were. They don't wear name tags that say, I started this thing. Troy, the one who really ended up starting the Salt Network, it, it... Everything that you've come to know and love about Saul Company is really the vision and, like, fingerprints of Troy Nesbitt. 
And so he, he's been interviewed and asked all the time, like, man, what has started this movement of the gospel to university centers all across the Midwest, all across the world? Like, students are getting baptized. Thousands of people have been baptized. What did you do? What did you know? How did you strategize? How are you gifted that you were able to do that? This is what he said. I love this. I have an above-average awareness of just how average I am. What's his answer like? Man, I'm so good at being average. I'm like unbelievably good at being average. Why, why does he say that? Because God likes to use unlikely people in unlikely places to make an extraordinary impact. He likes to take mustard seeds and make them trees in a garden. Pillars of fruitfulness. And being a part of this network has been one of the greatest joys of my life because Every time I talk to anyone in our network, they emphasize we are so unimpressive and we are just getting dumped on by the grace of God. I love that about our network and our network simultaneously has made me really sad recently because Jordan Adams, the one who started this Saul company, is moving to a new place to start another movement of the gospel in a university center in West Lafayette at Purdue University. I'm sad because Jordan's a mentor and a friend and a pastor, and likely he's the most formative person in my life in terms of my walk with Jesus. I would not be here. Not only like have this job, but just like have my love for the Bible and my love for the mission of God without Jordan Adams. And so I'm getting kind of emo. He moves in like a week. Uh, and so I wrote, I wrote a letter to Jordan, and I just actually wanted to share a part of it with you because I think... It shows the type of impact ordinary people can have on people's lives. This is what I said. Bear with me. So much, of, so much of campus and my college experience is marked by pivotal conversations with you. I walked by Noodles and Company and remember the first time we met, and through patience, you shared the gospel with a punk freshman. It was the first time I saw it as beautiful. I walked by Blarney's and remember the weird, cool bar ministry that happened there. Kind of before it launched, they met in Blarney's. It was super weird. But something in me knew this would be home. I walked by Chipotle on West Bank and I'm reminded of the lunch where we processed my growth since Salt Company started. I sit in Border Town and look at the table where I told you I wanted your job. The place I come every day to share the gospel with students is marked with a legacy of the one who through patience, grace, and persistence shared the gospel with me. Jordan, thank you for your faithfulness, primarily to the Lord, but also to Salt Company, and specifically to me. It's hard to imagine where I would be, what I would love, and the person I would become without God calling you to Minneapolis. Your five and a half years are far from being wasted. They have behind them an eternal legacy. There is fruit of your faithfulness that will be planted, that will plant more seeds of faith in new souls. Jordan, I'm excited because even as you say yes to a new place, there are still people here walking in the legacy of a path you pioneered. A path, of, a path that by God's grace will continue to reach law students in Minneapolis for years to come. Though they may not remember your name or at some point may not know who you are, there will be a legacy seen by few but held high by the Lord. Because of your yes to Minneapolis, there will be many more yeses to new places, to more people, and to saved souls. Dang, I love Jordan. Gosh, I love him. But man, Jordan taught me far better than to end a message where it's like Jordan is held high and God 
is not the one that's the hero. Here's what Jordan would say if he was here. He'd get on the stage, he'd rip the mic from me, and he'd say, like, I can pull out a figurative thank you letter to all the people's shoulders that I'm standing on. All the people that sowed seeds of faith in my life that went before me, and so could it, it, so it could go. So for you, the goal is to realize that you are the fruit of someone else's seed sowing, but also you can, you can also sow seeds that become fruit. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Think of actual fruit, right? Seed planted in the ground, bush or tree grows, fruit grows on tree. But if you plant the fruit back in the ground, more trees grow. Maybe that's not just an accident, but God has actually woven into the fabric of our planet the way the gospel would go out. From one insignificant seed to the next, but when planted, become pillars of fruitfulness. So for you, if you've accepted Christ, maybe that was 10 minutes ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, you too can be a seed sower. You too can bring the gospel to a new place to more people and to see fruit of your faithfulness. It's not because of how much you know. It's not because you're super influential or have super big impact. It's always God using unqualified in seemingly insignificant situations. It's always simple people that have been captivated by the grace of God and then take that and sow seeds in new people. And new pillars of fruitfulness emerge. I mean, I look out at this at this room, and I see world changers, and not just world changers one day, but a room of people that could change the fabric of this world, specifically this city of Minneapolis right now. Guys, my goodness, you guys have a message that has changed your eternity, and it can change other people's eternity too, and God has given it to you in order to share it with someone else. Here's how I've heard it said before. Uh, the gospel is like the wave, like the wave in you know stadiums. It comes to you on its way to someone else. It comes to you on its way to someone else. And you know what? God loves to use unqualified people to do it. Why? Because when he uses unqualified people to do it, he gets all the glory. Using unqualified people is not the exception. It's the rule in the kingdom of God. We see it in this parable that he uses insignificant things to bring about great change. It's the rule, not the exception. And so I'm just wondering what would happen if this room decided that they wanted to go hard in reaching college students with the gospel in the city of Minneapolis. Like, what if you just shared the gospel with people that you know? You all know someone. You all know someone that maybe this room can become seed-sowing fools. I love that language. I was on a Zoom call, and someone used that language uh, the other day. That we want to be seed-sowing fools. Because, frankly, I think we just 